at 8.30 in the morning on Wednesday, August 29th, Patrick Marsh, a meteorological student at the University of Oklahoma, sat in a field outside of Homa, Louisiana. He said that the experience was surreal. Gray skies loomed in all directions. There was this eerie quiet. Fifty miles away in New Orleans, Hurricane Isaac had the city under siege. Governor Jindal ordered a mandatory evacuation. Serious storm surges and high winds damaged 59,000 homes. More than a million families lost power. There were several fatalities. Yet in Homa, you could hear the birds chirp. And so it is in the eye of a hurricane. It's one of nature's strangest phenomenas. This storm, it batters and it batters. And then for about 10, 15 minutes, there's a peculiar quiet, followed by another onslaught from the furious storm. Well, that's a good picture of what we have in Revelation chapter 6 through 8. The king of the jungle, the lion of the tribe of Judah is in heaven. He is worthy to receive title to the universe. John sees Jesus, the lion, as a sacrificial lamb. His scars give testimony to the price he paid on Calvary. But he doesn't just buy back what's been lost. He intends to take back possession. And this is what Jesus does when he pops the seals and opens the scroll and evicts the squatters. Revelation 6 records the breaking of six of the seven seals and the awful judgments that they unleash. Remember the sixth seal knocks the earth off its hinges. Meteors, earthquakes, smoke, tsunamis. The inhabitants of the earth, they head to the hills. They plead for an avalanche to put them out of their misery. The whole earth shudders at the wrath of the Lamb. And the sixth seal closes with this challenge. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, that's the question sort of hanging in the air at the end of chapter 6. And that becomes the subject matter for chapter 7. Who can stand? Revelation 6 through 19 describes a future time period it calls Great Tribulation. The seven seals that John sees binding up the title deed are an eviction sequence. As Jesus pops each of the seals, judgments are released on earth. Each broken seal gets us one step closer to shutting down Satan and restoring the reign of Jesus to this planet. Six seals are cracked open, but the seventh seal is like a box of Cracker Jacks because it has a surprise inside. It holds seven more judgments called trumpets. The trumpet blast signaled to the earth that God means business, that sin has to be punished. Then seven bowls bubbling over with God's wrath are poured out. Add it all up and the earth gets what it deserves. Yet interspersed between all of these judgments, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, there are several vignettes or parenthetical passages where the focus falls on the people or the groups or the details that are related to this great tribulation. And chapter 7 is the first of these vignettes. 
Think of chapter 7, Revelation 7, as a selah within the seven seals. You'll find that word selah used 74 times in your Bible, three times in Hosea, the rest of those times in the Psalms. The root of the Hebrew word means to hang or by implication to measure. Commerce in the ancient world was done through scales and balances. Thus, the idea behind the term selah is to weigh in the balance, to hang on the scale. In the Hebrew hymnal, selah denoted a musical interlude where the lyrics would stop, but the music continued. It was a break where you could kind of digest the words and absorb the implications of what you'd sung. The Amplified Bible translates the term selah to mean pause and think about it. Well, this is how I treat Revelation chapter 7. In one sense, it's the eye of the storm. But it's more than that. It's a selah. It's not just a time to catch our breath from these devastating judgments that God unleashes on the rebel planet. It's also a time to reflect on what all this means. Here's an opportunity to see these events from heaven's perspective. And this is in keeping with the theme of this last book of your Bible. Remember, this book is not the revelation of the four horsemen. It's not the revelation of the seals and trumpets and bowls. It's not the revelation of the two witnesses or the revelation of the new Jerusalem or even the revelation of the Antichrist. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, the world is a jungle. It's a jungle out there. In the Revelation, the world is overrun with beasts and dragons and locusts and horsemen. We'll get to them all. But Jesus is the king of the jungle. And in every chapter in the Revelation, we should ask ourselves this question. What does this teach us about Jesus? Chapter 7 is no different. Here we're going to see his mercy and his diversity and his priority and his glory and his eternity. First, I want you to check out the lion's mercy. Verse 1, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, or at the four points of the compass. One angel's in the east, the other's in the west, north and south. These four angels are spread out over the globe, and notice they're holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. This is quite amazing. A mere four angels are restraining the wind. You know, the circulation of the earth's atmosphere, the westerlies and the easterlies, these are powerful engines. They're driven by the sun's energy. They're driven by the planet's rotation. We see the force of the wind clearest in a hurricane like Isaac or in a tornado. Yet there's also the trade winds and the sea breeze and the El Nino. The wind is a mighty force. And here, just four angels wrestle the earth's jet streams into submission. This is a display of God's supreme power. Nothing in His creation can rival the strength and might of the Creator. A mere four of God's strong men bring global air movements to a screeching halt. The earth grows quiet. A few seconds ago, the winds of judgment were howling. But now God has a few issues for us to weigh and to consider. Judgment is not all that's on his mind. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, 
having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Notice the angels who harnessed the wind were dispatched originally to judge the earth. God sent them to harm the land and the sea. But they're interrupted in the midst of their mission. And God orders them now, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. This pause is a cause for meditation. The king of the jungle is about to seal the fate of this wicked world. But notice first, he has his own people sealed. Truly, Jesus has run out of patience by this point. Judgment has come. But the lion interrupts himself to show mercy. Ponder this this morning. Jesus stops judgment to show mercy. Hopefully by now you know the meaning of a seal. We're not talking about navy seals or Easter seals or barking seals or adhesive seals or seals in croft. In the Bible, a seal was an insignia stamped into hot wax. It was a mark of ownership. A merchant would identify his cargo with his seal. Thus, when it reached its destination, he'd go down to the docks and he'd retrieve what he had sealed. And the seal prohibited anyone from tampering with his box or his package. If the owner's seal was broken, he knew that his merchandise had been violated. Did you know that the New Testament teaches that all true Christians belong to Jesus? We do. We've become His purchased possession. And our Lord has a unique way to seal what is His. Ephesians 1 verse 13 tells us, We are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God's Spirit is the Lord's mark of ownership on your life. It's the Spirit's presence and power in your life that affirms to you and to others that you truly belong to God. Romans chapter 8 verse 16 reads, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, the way you know you're a Christian is not whether you go to church or whether you've memorized a few verses or whether you even wear a cool Christian t-shirt. It's certainly not that you keep the rules and you're morally superior. Knowing that you're a Christian is all about one thing. As Jesus put it, you must be born again. Are you alive spiritually? This is the marker. Has God put His Spirit in you? Are you filled with the Spirit or are you full of yourself? Colossians 1 verse 27 tells us Christ in you. This is the hope of glory. Well, in the great tribulation, as well as right now, the people who are able to stand are those who've been sealed by their Lord Jesus and those who have the Holy Spirit of God. Now, even in the midst of these judgments in Revelation 6, we learn that people will embrace Jesus. And He will seal them with the Holy Spirit. He'll stamp His mark of ownership on the foreheads of His servants. You know, sometimes we think we're all alone. We're the last of the faithful Christians. But you know, that's almost never the case. It's amazing to me that even at this point, with the world in its death throes, there's new life in the hearts of a few. Jesus always has a living and faithful remnant. You remember back in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, he was throwing a pity party. He thought he was the only one standing and fighting against the idolatry of Jezebel. 
But God comes and he straightens out Elijah's attitude. Elijah wasn't alone. God tells him, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. I mean, these were some of the darkest days in Israel's history. Idolatry had become the state religion. Yet God was still at work drawing out a people for himself. There were still those who loved the Lord. Just goes to show, whether it's an Ahab on the throne, or an Obama, or a Romney occupying the presidency, it doesn't matter. God's plans never fail. His mercies are new every morning. God never abandons his people. Understand, wild winds are about to blow again as the Lord seals his servants. Even in the midst of this judgment, the Lord is all about mercy. Notice verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Asher, and Naphtali, and Manasseh, and Simeon, and Levi, and Issachar, and Zebulun, and Joseph, and of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. That's ironic to me, but every cult that comes down the pike will usually claim to be the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7. For a while, the Jehovah's Witnesses identified themselves as the 144,000. That is, until their roles swelled to more than 144,000. And that's when they modified their doctrine. And now they claim that the 144,000 is just an elite group of Jehovah's Witnesses. The Worldwide Church of God claimed to be part of the 144,000 for a time, as did some Seventh-day Adventists. And yet i got to ask the question, Has anybody read verse 4? It clearly identifies this group as 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. It even gives us the specific tribes. These guys are Jews. If someone tells you they're one of the 144,000, just ask them, which tribe? Seminole and Cherokee doesn't count. There are 12,000 from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. The 144,000 is an exclusively Jewish fraternity. Now understand how God views the human race. You know, when I'm sitting at the airport, I love to people watch. Do you ever do this? I love to watch people. All kinds of people stroll by at the airport. There are short people and tall people and fat people and skinny people. And there's brown people, and there's pale people, and there's bouncy people, and there's sullen people, and there's young people, and old people, and old people trying to look like young people, (laughs) and there's hurried people, and hungover people, and at the airport, there's sad to leave people, and happy to be home people. And yet, in the Old Testament, there were only two types of people. God chose the Jews the descendants of his servant Abraham, for special treatment. The nation Israel was a distinct group. Everybody else was called Gentiles. When God divvied up the human race, he grouped us all into one of two categories, Jews or Gentiles. But this changes in the New Testament. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains how that in Christ, he has created a new man. Today, God sees a third group, the church. And the church is a combination of believing Jews and believing Gentiles who've come together through their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you can go to Hartsville Jackson Airport today, this afternoon, and you'll see three types of people. You'll see Jews, Gentiles, and Christians, and the church. But it's appropriate that you're airport, at the airport because soon the church is going to fly away. We're outbound, by the way. Heaven is our home. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says we'll be snatched away. We'll be caught up in the clouds with Jesus, and we won't even need an airplane ticket. The Bible calls it the rapture. Faith in Jesus is our boarding pass. But here's what this means on earth. After the rapture, there's only two groups of people again. Jews and Gentiles. And the judgments that occur at the time are staged for them. In fact, referring to the church, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 states, God did not appoint us to wrath. Paul says of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Understand for the church, a great escape awaits. You and I are going to be raptured when the church goes up, then the judgments come down. The great tribulation is for unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. This is the final opportunity for both. Apparently, this is the jolt needed to open eyes that have been blind to God's truth. These 144,000 Jews, they will believe. They'll believe in Jesus. And with the church now in heaven, God will seal these Jews. He'll equip them, and he'll use them to spread the gospel of his grace. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his followers, Go and make disciples of all nations. This has been the job of every generation of believers. We need to share the gospel. But in the great tribulation, the church is in heaven, absent on earth. And God will resort to other interesting evangelistic methods. In fact, we'll jump ahead in Revelation 14. He sends angels that actually fly through the sky declaring to humanity the everlasting gospel. Revelation 11 speaks of two witnesses who will grab the world's attention by performing miracles. And here, Jesus empowers these 144 evangelists. Imagine 144 Billy Grahams let loose on the earth. Revelation 9 describes a bizarre scene. Hell, the bottomless pit. It opens up and it empties out creatures that roam the earth to torment the rebels that remain. Chapter 9, verse 4, speaks to these demonic beings. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. But notice the group who apparently can't be touched by these tormentors. It's those who have the seal. It's the 144,000 Jewish servants of God we find here in Revelation 7. The lion affords them supernatural protection against all things devilish and demonic. John Phillips, he paints a picture of the protection that God provides them. He writes, The concentration camps and torture chambers of the beast's fearful inquisition will leave them unscathed. 
The fire will not kindle upon them, nor the smell of smoke be on their garments. The secret police will have dossiers as thick as prison walls, but they will be unable to harm them. The seal of God rests upon them, and they are saved and secure come what may. They will be living proof of the devil to the devil that not only is his power strictly limited by divine decree, but in the end, he cannot win. I'd like to give the devil that message. When the devil and his henchmen rise up in the end times, he's going to have 144,000 burrs in his backside that are going to remind him that he can't win. And yet, why did the Jews get turned into these supernatural heroes? The Lord Jesus knows that there's limited time left, and he wants nothing to disrupt these witnesses from completing their mission of proclaiming the gospel. Imagine their effectiveness. I mean, these are non-Messianic Jews. Suddenly, they convert to Jesus. They're now sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit. They're armed with supernatural protection. They're preaching on the heels of the rapture. I mean, millions of people have disappeared. Prop that up against the backdrop of horrible judgments, the end of the world as we know it. And you can expect millions of people to rush to conversion. Folks will not only get saved during the Great Tribulation, there will be a colossal revival on the earth. Did you know that everywhere in the world today, except North America and Europe, Christianity and the church are experiencing unprecedented growth? Did you know this? Not since the book of Acts has the church grown at such a pace. In 1900, Korea had no Protestant church at all. Today, there's 7,000 churches in the city of Seoul. At the end of the 19th century, in the southern portion of Africa, it was 3% Christian. Today, the population of Christians there is 63%. African churches are adding 34,000 members daily to their roles. It's estimated that in China today, Jesus has more disciples than the Communist Party has members. Very soon, more Christians will live in China than in any other country on the earth. It's amazing of, what, of what's going on. In India, 14 million untouchables are now Christians. In Islamic Indonesia, the percentage of Christians has grown so high, so high somewhere around 15%, that the Muslim government refuses to publish the statistics. It's so embarrassing to them. Even in the traditional Muslim world, more people are converting to Christianity than any other time in history. Across the planet today, the church is growing by 80,000 new believers each day. We're starting 3,500 churches each week. And yet understand, the largest and the most sweeping spiritual awakening that the world has ever seen is still future. And ironically, it won't occur until the church has been raptured off the earth. In Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus predicted, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus foresaw a final worldwide burst of evangelistic activity just prior to His return. And I believe it gets carried out largely by this supernaturally protected 144,000 Jews. Now notice the immediate results of their efforts. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. 
Now here's another group of believers coming out of this period of great tribulation. This time, it's a horde of Gentiles. Now remember, this is not the church. We're in heaven by this point. This group consists of people who believed in the gospel witness of the 144,000 Jews who embraced Christ in the middle of this terrible time of punishment. And pay attention to the size of this group. John calls it a great multitude which no one could number. Now later in Revelation 9, John will see an army that numbers 200 million. So, if this group is a size that can't be numbered, it has to exceed 200 million. He's proven he can count that high. I mean, perhaps a billion people will be saved in the Great Tribulation. That's the point. When the lion in Jesus roars and brings judgment, the lamb in Jesus will see to it that everybody who can be saved will be saved. After the rapture, folks will still be converted. Notice this great multitude is no longer on earth. They're before the throne in heaven now. It seems many of them have died for their faith. Here are future martyrs. I've heard some well-meaning preachers in the past imply that once the rapture takes place, all hope is lost. Man, you've missed the bus. Well, that's not biblical. You can be saved after the rapture. But trust me, it will be a deadly proposition. By that, by that future point, the tide will have turned. There'll be no more tolerance. Leaders defiant of God will make it a capital crime to be a Christian. And it's not just martyrdom that you should fear. Throughout human history, evil men have devised tortures that make death look like a welcome friend. Even today, from Egypt to Pakistan, from China to Vietnam from parts of Sudan to parts of Nigeria. Believers are tortured today for Jesus' sake. There were more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in any previous century. And yet persecution today pales in comparison to the hardship that these post-rapture believers can expect. Imagine trying to live for Jesus, living for Christ under the tyranny of the Antichrist. One author writes of these future challenges. He says they leave life through the they live life. No, they leave life. I'll get it right. They leave life through the terrifying gates of the most horrible deaths that Satan can devise. The maggot in the fires, the rack, the thumbscrew in the wheel, the scalpel and the sword are their means of exodus. Understand this: the Great Tribulation will become the Christian Holocaust. If you miss the rapture, but decide to follow Christ, it won't be easy, it won't be pretty, but thankfully there will be hope. The great multitude in verse 9 is proof. Even after Jesus comes for His church, those who remain will still have the opportunity to embrace Him. And this is the important lesson chapter 7 teaches. It reveals to us that the Lord, He never ceases His commitment to extend salvation as far and as wide and as long as he possibly can. I mean, even in the throes of judgment. And I mean, by this point, the lion, he has the earth in a headlock and an armbar and a sleeper hold. But rather than go for the pen, he prefers a surrender. He pauses so the sinners can tap out, so that they can repent. And yet many will refuse. It's possible, 
Or let me ask you, is it possible for Jesus to serve justice and to stay true to God's righteousness and yet still have a bigger heart? I don't think so. Under the lion's roar is the love of a lamb. He never gives up on love. Even when wrath from heaven comes down, His forgiveness can still be found. God forbid that you're still here. God forbid. You don't want to be. You want to be saved today. But if you are, never give up on a merciful God. Jesus will serve as this earth's righteous judge, but He never stops being its Savior. Jesus is rich in mercy to the very end. And there's another revelation into the heart of Jesus that comes out of chapter 7. Recall now we're in the eye of a hurricane. Winds of judgment are about to howl again. Jesus has this brief window of opportunity to wake up a sleeping world. And how does he do it? He raises up an army of Jews to preach the gospel. The same gospel that saved you and that saved me. You see, his strategy isn't to defeat the Antichrist in the next election. Or to hire a hit squad to take out the false prophet. Or to send heavenly drones to attack the corrupt Babylon. No, his solution is spiritual, not political. Jesus arms his end time army with the gospel. And he seals them with the Holy Spirit. And these two forces remain the most powerful change agents known to mankind. And if that's what the lion relies on to transform the hearts of men in the world's darkest, most challenging days, why would he resort to lesser methods today? Realize the world's greatest need today is the gospel. And the gospel preacher's greatest ally is the Holy Spirit. Paul said to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. In a world full of ungrace, God's grace is the poultice. It's the healing balm that we all need. And don't kid yourself. This would still be true no matter who occupied 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The gospel certainly makes an impact in the Great Tribulation. An innumerable multitude gets saved. But, but notice not only the number. Notice the nationalities of this crowd in heaven. That they're of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Recall the question at the end of the sixth seal in chapter 6. Who is able to stand? Well, here, this multitude, those who believed in the gospel, they now stand before the throne and before the Lamb. And notice their makeup. They're from all nations. Not one of the earth's 169 countries is missing here. They're from all tongues. Not a single language group remains unreached by this point. They're from all peoples. Every race, every skin tone, every background is represented here. Expect to see a rich diversity when you get to heaven. In the aftermath of this week's election, one of the big issues discussed was the changing demographics of the United States. That our country is turning browner. In light of that, next summer I plan to work on a nice tan. Because I'm pretty pale. But diversity has always been the issue in heaven. 
Heaven is multiracial, multicultural, multicolored, probably even multilingual. You may speak all kinds of languages in heaven. Although, I hope you do know that we'll all have a southern accent in heaven. That, that's something you should know. Just kidding. Heaven is certainly going to be brown and red and black and yellow and beige. It's the ultimate rainbow coalition. Understand, heaven won't fall victim to a uniform sameness. Heaven will be fun, not boring. It won't be full of cookie-cutter folk. We won't all be stamped from the same mold and occupied with the same duties. That's not heaven. That's probably hell. Everybody in heaven will be acutely aware that God created them with unique gifts and a unique personality. This is part of being made in God's image. On earth, sin has distorted His image. It has diminished our gifts. But in heaven, we'll all be free to be all that God wants us to be. In heaven, creativity will flourish. There'll be no inhibitions. Talents won't be buried under a fear of failure. We won't worry about rejection or disapproval. Rather than suppress individuality, in heaven it gets celebrated. In heaven there'll be this multicultural diversity, but there'll also be this strong, formidable unity. I made a mistake last Christmas by having an African Christmas party at my house. I knew it was kind of going to go wrong when I was the only one that showed up wearing my African dashiki and all. But you got to understand my heart behind this. I want, it, I want everyone in our fellowship to enjoy all our events. I'd like to see all our members equally involved in what we're doing. And it was just my desire to help the members of Calvary Chapel, those with an African heritage, feel more a part of their church. I felt that was a need. Certainly, the folks that came to the party, they were polite, they were appreciative. But here's what I was told. Pastor Sandy, we don't want to be divided into African Christians and European Christians. Just treat us like Christians. And I thought, there's wisdom there. And that's what it is in heaven. Yes, there's this diversity, but it doesn't matter. For there is this strong unity. Though this multitude is culturally diverse, notice they're spiritually united. Before the throne and before the Lamb, they all come clothed with white robes. They're all wearing the same garments. That's united. Heaven is multiracial. It's multicultural. And, and maybe our robes will be designed differently. Probably so. There'll probably be some folks in some flowing dashikis, and there may be some in, in some hoodies and some in some bath robes and graduation robes. And I imagine all kinds of different robes will be there. But notice, they're all the same color. They're white, which represents the purity that's ours in Christ. Isaiah puts it, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. In other words, Jesus is the commonality that is greater than all of our differences. And we'll realize that supremely when we get to heaven. And notice in heaven, we're all going to worship alike. The crowd stands with palm branches in their hands. In heaven, it's Palm Sunday every day. We've been saved to sing. We've been washed to worship. The Lamb doesn't save us and cleanse us just so we can get to heaven. There's a job to do once we arrive. Heaven's chief preoccupation is the praise and worship of God. And this is what John hears. Verse 10 
describes a deafening roar that goes up from the multitude, crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Heaven is the most racially and culturally diverse place you'll ever go. If you like diversity, you're going to like heaven. But spiritually, heaven is homogenous. You've never been to a place that's more united, that's in more total agreement. Everyone in heaven will have gotten there the exact same way. This is why they sing, salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. They'll know that Mohammed didn't get them to heaven. That the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and the Virgin Mary didn't get them to heaven. They'll know that Buddha didn't get them to heaven. They'll know that the Book of Mormon and the angel Moroni didn't get them to heaven. They couldn't even get Mitt to the White House. They, they can't get them to heaven. They don't get anybody to heaven. Listen to heaven itself. If you want to go to heaven, listen to the multitude that's already there before the throne. They sing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Only Jesus Christ can get you to heaven. Only Him. And notice how the praise of these tribulation saints stirs the song of the other inhabitants of heaven. In fact, that's often what happens. Praise is contagious. When one group or person gets their eyes on God, others follow. We're told in verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne. Boy, that's an understatement. All the angels? That could be billions, maybe trillions. And the elders. The 24 elders include members of the church. And the four living creatures. These are heaven's secret service. Everyone combined fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Heaven begins and ends its praise with an exclamation, Amen. Praise is the priority of heaven. The most commonly held concept in the universe is that God is worthy of blessing and wisdom and glory and honor and thanks and might forever and ever. Only Satan and stubborn men still debate it. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I'm sure John was a little stunned by this. I mean, what does an elder in heaven, why is he asking John anything? I mean, John, John's the new kid on the block. He's still wearing the visitor's badge. And so he replied, he said to him, Sir, you know. You, know, you kind of love John. He doesn't really want to admit that he doesn't know. I mean, you get to heaven, you want to look like you belong there. So he just kind of tosses it back. And so he said to me, and now the heavenly elder, he answers his own question. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And there's an oxymoron for you. Made white in the blood. Bloodstains don't usually turn a garment white, do they? But the blood of Jesus has holy hemoglobin. His sacrificial blood takes out the grimiest grime and the dirtiest dirt. In fact, the only way to become spiritually clean in the eyes of God is to wash your robe in the blood of the Lamb. In chapter 8, the lion will order the angels who are holding back the winds to stand down, to release them. And judgment will resume. But at the moment, 
there's a sila. Chapter 7 is some breathing room to now consider and to ponder the Lord's desire to show mercy, His trust in the gospel, the diversity in heaven, the hardship on earth. But in the next three verses, we now get a glimpse of the conditions in heaven. And this is going to blow your mind. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Now, the elder is speaking of the great multitude that come out of great tribulation, but these pictures are the travel brochure heaven sends to all believers. And I want you to notice first, the focus in heaven. What is it? It's not the glassy sea or the tree of life or the living creatures or the saints of old or your unanswered questions or even the people that you're anxious to see when you get there. No, the focus in heaven, what is going to capture your imagination, is the throne of God. Heaven is about God's authority, His right to rule. This is why some of you are going to be very uncomfortable in heaven. Because right now, your life is all about you. That's all you worry about. That's all you care about. In heaven, you don't matter. Well, you do. You're loved. You're cared for. But in heaven, the big deal is God's authority. It's His right to rule. God is what heaven is about. And if you don't love God, you're going to have a problem. Life in heaven revolves around the throne. And we'll have specific assignments, some projects, some vital activities to do. I mean, we're not just going to be trampling on, trampolining on cumulus clouds or taking harp lessons. That's not what heaven's about. We're going to be busy, not bored. Heaven is all about strategic business. We will worship at God's throne and will serve the Lord day and night, we're told. And then he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. This is what makes heaven heaven. We're finally with our Lord Jesus, unhindered, unencumbered. Did you know that in heaven, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's going to be really different? In fact, you, you'll, you'll begin it. Our Father who art here. Wow. Verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. And this was the problem for the believers who came out of the Great Tribulation. Later, we're going to learn that they get blackmailed, that to buy or sell, they have to deny their allegiance to Jesus and submit to Antichrist. Their refusal leads to starvation and thirst. But now in heaven, there's lots and lots to eat and drink. And aren't you glad? Heaven is the land of second helpings, stocked pantries. They neither hunger anymore or thirst anymore. And then there's protection from the harsh environment that the judgments have caused on earth. Heaven brings relief. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. And then verse 17 conveys to me one of the most beautiful thoughts in all of the Bible. It says, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. Notice this. The Lamb will be their shepherd. Who better to be our shepherd than God's Lamb? And then finally, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But there will be some tears to wipe away. For the folks that come out of great tribulation will have suffered much. That's why I hope that you'll make the Lamb your shepherd today. That you won't wait till then. That would be foolish. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to give your life to Jesus.
Why don't we bow our, our heads and hearts together. Father, we thank you for your love for us this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that in these next few moments that you'll, you'll find your way into hearts here today. Lord, you stand at the door and you knock. And you ask if anyone hears that voice and opens the door, you'll pro- you've promised to come in and fellowship with them. And so I'd just like to ask you this morning, I want to pray for you. If there's someone here this morning who doesn't know Jesus, who's never given your life to Jesus, you've never opened the door and invited him in, and you'd like to this morning, I want you to raise your hand. You certainly don't want to wait till after we're gone. You certainly don't want to think, oh, I can do this another day. Today is the day of salvation. Is there anybody here this morning that would say, Pastor Sandy, pray for me. I really need to give my life to Jesus. I'm, I'm pretty lost. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm struggling. And I really need, it's been all about me for a long time now. And I need to surrender my life to Him. I need to put Him first in my life. Is there anybody? Would you raise your hand? I'll pray for you. Anybody? Anybody have that need this morning? Well, Lord, we thank you for those that are here today. Lord, I do pray for that person this morning who may not have raised their hand but knows that they have that need. I pray that they wouldn't put it off one day longer. Father, we thank you for your good work in our hearts, for your love for us. And Lord, we thank you for these promises that we have. Lord, it it really is frightening to think about what's at store for this planet. But at the same time, too, Lord, we know that, that you never change and that your love abounds. And even in the midst of your judgment, you still extend mercy. We're pretty amazed by that. Lord, we thank you for your mercies toward us. Lord, help us to live, Lord, appreciative lives. And Lord, help us to appreciate your mercy toward us by sharing it with others. Lord, the mission today is to get out the good news to as many people as we can. I pray to start with us in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our workplace, wherever we go. Give us opportunities, Lord, to share the gospel of grace. For it is the power of God to salvation to anyone who believes. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.